Hey, it's Mark. With fourth quarter results season approaching for many biopharma companies, we're gearing up to hear the usual fodder of earnings calls. You know, stimulating chatter on talking points like 2024 guidance and underlying market fundamentals, doctor visit trends in the R&D pipeline. When it comes to Olanco, the second largest independent animal health company, investor focus will squarely be on the company's upcoming new product approvals. In addition to the three potentially blockbuster pet-slash-animal health products up for Food and Drug Administration approval over the next five and a half months or so, the company is in the midst of bringing a monoclonal antibody and other products to market. That makes it a great time to find out what new marketing efforts are in store and the expected advertising ramp behind these upcoming launches. So I sat down with Olanco CEO Jeffrey Simmons to find out. If you've ever wondered how marketing an animal health product compares to promoting a pharmaceutical, Simmons here puts on a comparative marketing clinic. As it turns out, the tools of the trade for persuading veterinarians to adopt the product in their practices and drive pet owners into the clinic is remarkably similar to the dynamic on the human side. This week on the podcast, how Alanco is looking to execute through a historic period of blockbuster launches. Alesh is here with a health policy update. Hey, Mark. Today, I'll give an update on Senator Bernie Sanders' showdown with Big Pharma, as the CEOs of both Johnson & Johnson and Merck have agreed to testify at a February 8th hearing about high drug costs. And Jack, what's on tap for the trend segment? This week, we're talking about Neuralink's first brain implant in a human subject, the planned documentary about Celine Dion's health struggles, and the closing days of dry January. I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. Jeffrey, welcome to the MMM Podcast. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, this is the first time we've had you on the show, and I believe the first time we've had an animal health company on the podcast. First, if it's okay with you, please uh, tell me what brings you to the New York Stock Exchange today. Oh, lots lots of meetings. I've just come in from uh, Florida, the the North America Vet Conference down in Florida, and uh, in, in town for a few more meetings. So uh, looking forward to our discussion today. Absolutely. You know, most of our listeners are medical marketers working in human health, but Alanco sees itself as a bridge between animal health and the health of the planet. So uh, you're just as big a part of the healthcare marketing story as Eli Lilly, which I know you split off from back in 2018. Um, your company launched a marketing campaign just yesterday uh, to save a million puppies from parvovirus. It's called the Defend Puppies Defeat Parvo campaign. Um, you know, parvovirus has a mortality rate as high as 91%, I think, in dogs. An estimated 900 dogs are diagnosed with parvovirus daily in the U.S., mostly unvaccinated puppies that many pet owners don't know about it. So can you give us a brief overview of that campaign? Yeah, you did, did a nice job. Yeah, there's a lot of energy coming out of uh, this large conference we're at uh, where most of the veterinarians in America converge in January and look at uh, solutions to key health problems. And you said it well, Mark. We believe in Elanco that making animals' lives better makes life better from protein to pets. Um, we touch uh, the, the human health side with better nutrition, with protein, to the, the mental health and the companionship side with the whole uh, pet side. And then also we're getting into the environmental side. So the parvovirus uh, is our first monoclonal antibody approved by the USDA as a conditional approval into the marketplace here in the U.S. We see it as one of our six potential blockbusters um, that we're going to be involved in and bringing to the market the next two years. That's uh, one of the things that I'm excited about and talking to some people in New York about. So parvovirus, you, you, you hit it very well. Um, this is the deadliest virus in puppies today. 
eight to 900 puppies a day, as you say, uh, diagnosed with this, if not properly treated, over 90% mortality. This antibody uh, treated in the vet clinic, uh, we've seen an early success bringing it into the market. We had some limited supply in 2023, but we saw great success in terms of the treatment and the effectiveness of this product. So, you know, as I heard from a veterinarian yesterday, we went from dealing with tragic news to that new pep puppy owner that just brought it into the home to now we're becoming heroes for the family with this treatment. So what we did is we made a pledge uh, because we know the veterinarians are great people and they're in it for a cause. That that profession is a very mission-driven profession that we love to serve. And we signed a pledge and are continuing to sign a pledge to say, hey, together with this technology, with a profession of veterinarians, we're going to save a million puppies by the end of the decade. So, and it does tie right into, we are in the people business, I say in Elanco, coming out of Eli Lilly. We do it with pets, protein. Our vision is food and companionship enriching life. And this is one of the best examples of it I've seen in my 30 some years in this industry. Yeah. And, and you've got, you know, you're giving, um, you know, you, you had the pledge, uh, you formed a task force, which we'll talk a little bit about later, and you're giving some incentives to, to veterinarians to up that, you know, the, the usage rate. Um, and of course, the uh, the campaign parvovirus, excuse me, the canine parvovirus monoclonal antibody, as you said, was conditionally approved by the USDA to shorten the course of the disease and improve outcomes in animals. I think a validated potency test is the missing piece for full licensure. And I think the USDA is reviewing that data right now, right? That, that is correct. And you're exactly right. What, what happens with before this treatment, it was a prolonged, very contagious virus. You needed to contain the dog in the vet clinic. Uh, again, success rate was, was really challenging. And, and it made a, a vet clinic, which right now uh, across the, the country, 30,000 vet clinics are struggling with capacity. We're, we're short of veterinarians in, as a profession. So this, this virus caused a lot of problems inside the vet clinic as well. So we're creating efficiency for the veterinarian, much more, uh, you know, better outcomes for the pet owners. Uh, it's kind of a win across the board. And veterinarians like to get behind a, you know, nationwide initiative like this. And it's something unique and different. We're excited to do it. Great. And the, and the monoclonal, we'll call it the CPMA, as you do, yes. has now achieved uh, unconstrained supply capacity, meaning the supply has caught up with the demand. T tell us what that means for Elanco. Yeah. So we, we are the second company to bring monoclonal antibodies into animal health. It'll be a platform that'll bring a lot of uh, alternatives, whether that's pain or other, other things that can come from this platform. We actually, you know, we're scaling up the bioreactors, very common in monoclonal antibody production. And so that scale up has to happen really after the product has been approved. And so we've been scaling that up and now we have done that and uh, we have unrestricted supply and that'll be, really be uh, great to, to be able to get this product distributed across the country. And that's what we're doing now. We've expanded our sales force 20%. Some of that's because of this product, but uh, you know, we've got a couple other products that are in final stage with the FDA that are coming to the marketplace in the pet market here in the U.S. And that'll be excellent segue to, to the next question. I know the other big news for you is the setup for 2024 and the three blockbuster pet health products that are up for approval over the next five and a half months. Those products, uh, you have Credelio Quattro, which is for flea, tick and worm. Uh, disease Zenrelia, a jack inhibitor for canine derm, derm use, and Bovair. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but right. Meth for methane, methane reduction uh, in in cattle. And um, you know, I wanted to ask you, how are the conversations with the FDA going? And are you still on track for a first half approval? 
Yeah, and maybe just to back out, Mark, here's what's most important, I believe, is that, you know, Elanco's, it's our 70th year. And uh, just at the end of 2022 in the recorded, we had, we had 10 blockbusters. That's over $100 million product in animal health. And we are sitting on six right now. And you just highlighted a couple more on the pet side. So this is, um, you know, the most exciting pipeline we've seen in our 70 years. And that's what we're sitting on here as we look at the next two years, six blockbusters coming to the market. We've talked about parvovirus, a couple in cattle. But yes, we're in the final stages. The first one is Zenrelia. It's a JAK1 inhibitor. Uh, it is in the derm, atopic dermatitis. It's the number one reason a pet owner goes to the veterinarian is an itching dog. Right? I say they can self-diagnose them, you know, themselves to the pet owner. And this is a $1.2 billion market. The vet has very limited options right now. And we're bringing a differentiated asset into a very large market that's growing uh, with the JAK1 inhibitors and Relia. It is uh, got a path to a first half 2024 approval. We're in that rolling iterative phase with the FDA. Um, and things continue to progress. At the same time, uh, we've got uh, Credelio Quattro. Uh, the largest market on the pet side is the parasiticide market. Everyone knows about ticks, fleas, heartworm, and other worms. Credelio Quattro brings quite a differentiation into the largest market uh, for animal health. It has the broadest coverage, tick, flea, and worm coverage. It is the only product with four active ingredients, so it's going to create convenience for the pet owner, the veterinarian, and that is in the same stage. It has uh, got a path for a first half 2024 approval. So these are these are great innovations. Uh, we have another um, a monoclonal antibody for derm coming in 2025 as well. So we'll be providing a lot of uh, opportunity for, for the veterinarian and the pet owners here over the next two years. Sounds like a, a favorable setup for 2024. Um, now, since this is the MMNM podcast, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what new marketing efforts are in store and, and the expected advertising ramp behind these upcoming launches. Yeah. So if you think about uh, vet clinics and, and also the animal health market, there's really uh, there's really two sides of it. It's inside the vet clinic and it's outside. And if you think about these uh, new innovations, they'll, they'll provide great solutions for the veterinarian and pet owners that will be going through the vet channel. So the first thing we'll do is we've increased our sales force uh, as we want to make sure that the, the, the vet clinics and the technicians and the veterinarians know about these products. And that's kind of the push part of this. And then the pull will be, we'll look at everything from digital. Uh, we use a lot of digital campaigns here where we can target practices, target geographies, um, maybe you know, knowing where the dissatisfaction is in an atopic dermatitis market. So we'll, we'll, we'll probably lead with digital followed by DTC. We will, we will absolutely use uh, TV advertising that will pull things through once we know that there's more, more awareness at the vet clinic. So, and, you know, we'll, we'll look at that after we get the label from the FDA, we know the product, we get the awareness on the ground, and then we'll build that, that added demand afterwards. Um, and maybe, Mark, I'll just segue. You know, we acquired Bayer Animal Health a couple years ago, and we did that for more of a pet business. We were at 30% of our, of our portfolio was pets. And with Bayer, we went to over 50%. It tripled our international pet business. Um, and it's uh, the globalization of pets is, is quite big. It also improved our scale. We went from a mid-sized company to today. We're the second largest independent animal health company. So, you know, what Bayer brought us was outside the vet. 
So we have a pretty large OTC. You've heard about the Advantage family. It's one of the more known pet brands as well as Ceresto. So what we, we look to do is be the omni-channel leader, and we are. From in and outside the vet, we say we can meet any pet owner where they want to shop, at what price point. So online, at the pet store, or in the vet clinic, and uh, doing that globally is key. Um, so we use a lot of marketing as well on the OTC side that can be advertisement-driven as well as even through major retailers and online as we are the leaders in that um, outside the vet market as well. Hmm, interesting. And uh, you just you completed that acquisition of Bear, which took place in 2020. Um, the integration for that just just finished, um, as from what I what I hear. Um, and uh, as you say, that increased your kind of footprint in the uh, in the pet market. How, how is the retail pet market kind of shaping up this year? Yeah. So through the first three quarters for Elanco, we're up 10 percent on the on the U.S. pet retail side. Um, we continue to see nice growth there. And there again, there is still a large uh, percentage, uh, up to 30% in the U.S. and even similar outside the U.S. of pet owners that do not go to the veterinarian. Uh, there's a high percentage of cat owners that don't naturally go to the veterinarian. So being able to have OTC products that they can access online, they can access you know, in their pet store, um, even a value store in rural America, this really opens opens up nice things. What you need to grow that market is you need to keep innovating, whether that's like a CPG product, whether it's small changes to the packaging or a lower cost option that, uh, you know, a brand that may need to be refreshed to new technology um, that can last longer, longer duration, more value. So, you know, we have added innovation We've added more physical availability. We're going to Tractor Supply, Lowe's, other value stores to be on more shelves at more price points. That's what's driving the growth. And I would say the same thing. Internationally, Mark, another key trend, today in the U.S., 70% of the homes have a pet. Internationally, a lot of markets, it's 20%. So this humanization of pets is globalizing. And pet retail, that will be another driver, is the globalization of, of the trends that we're seeing here in America with pets. And you can't help but walk you know, into a CVS or Walgreens and see a pet aisle. So you have that retail presence as well. So you, the importance of OTC in addition to DTC you know, becomes clearer there. It does. I mean, being in more physical available places, and we brought in a lot of sense acquiring bear, a lot of consumer product good talent and expertise from that sector has joined Elanco to really, we've really refreshed the way we're looking at this market segment. And, and uh, we are the leaders there and we're going to continue to invest. We see a nice runway of growth in, uh, in pet retail. Great. I was just hoping to uh, shift gears for one second and come back to the Parvo campaign for a moment. One of the three main pillars is this task force. And um, as I read, some notable names have signed on, uh, including influential veterinarians like Dr. Hunter Finn, Christian Zerson, and Fred Metzger. I think these are you know kind of uh, leading lights in, in your uh, community. Um, the phenomenon of veterinary influencers, I find an interesting one. You know, I'm sure there are influential vets out there, as, as there are in any profession 
profession has its influencers. I recall our, our family veterinarian, Dr. Mark Rosenberg, from where I grew up. Um, as, as many of our listeners either leverage influencers to augment their own clients' marketing campaigns or they work directly to cultivate those influencers, I was wondering if you could talk about perhaps how that works in your field. You know, are there differences in how it works between veterinary and human health? Uh, is there a big uh, problem with misinformation in the veterinary space as there is in the human health space? Yeah, it, it, it's just very similar. There's a lot of parallels to the human side. So look, this is a science-based, heavily regulated um, industry. And uh, Elanco for 70 years has been based around just, just you know, coming from our parent company, Eli Lilly. Um, it, is, it is starts and ends with the science and the influencers, just like the physicians on the human side, the veterinarians are the keepers of that information. And they are the ones that are credible. They're the ones that pet owners look to first. And we like that and desire that. So there's also some specialty work, just like on the human side. That's another parallel. So there's there's specialists in parasiticides, even a, even a heartworm specialist or atopic dermatitis. And there's specialty clinics that are focused on even oncology, diabetes. These specialists then become, you know, the ones that will do the extra research, will help maybe even with some of the research that's being conducted or analyze that research at a greater level. And then they will, you know, objectively speak uh, on this from uh, really a point of uh, knowledge. Just coming from the show down in Orlando where all the veterinarians convene every year, you know, they're all there getting their education credits by sitting and listening to these experts and uh, that's how it cascades. So absolutely, the influencer network from a scientific basis is one of the greatest nodes of influence. But to me also, it gives us good comfort that uh, you know everything starts and ends with the science. And that's what we're doing here with parvovirus as well. Great. Just to shift gears one more time, you know, I've heard you talk about this, how the pandemic shook the food supply chain. You know, we all recall those empty store shelves uh, and the inability to buy basic necessities. It, it really tested the resiliency of the system. Society said not again, but what have we learned from that experience and what's being done to prevent it? Yeah. So look, I, I think, um, and you're speaking specifically of the protein side, is that what you're saying? Or just overall, like a company like Elanco, Tim? Overall, for, for the, from what the company's perspective is on that. Yeah, I think I think we've learned a, a lot. I mean, first of all, I mean, we've spent a lot of time and effort uh, over the last couple of years of setting up an ERP system globally as we integrated um, Bayer, we stood up out of Lilly. Uh, I believe the first thing, Mark, we all learned is you've got to have deep expertise. You've got to have a global system of data to have tremendous uh, awareness of. And then there's a balance between just in time and just in case. Uh, you've got to have partners that you can count on. There's an active ingredient supply um, chain that I believe is shortened a little bit post-COVID to actually create the, you know, the, the resiliency and the security that we're going to be able to have that. We have backup supply uh, on any critical product and keep the right level of inventory on any critical product like a parvovirus to assure that we can supply that on, on critical needs. So I think it's data, systems, expertise, and the right inventory and partners are things that I think all of us have shored up significantly post-COVID. Great. And any final words before I let you go, Jeff? You know, I, I would conclude uh, just uh, the key and reasons. Uh, I know you were at J.P. Morgan a couple weeks ago, and Ani Lanco, I think the, the, the noise kind of is positive and coming. We've had uh, four buy ratings, two new coverages, and a lot of it is back to just three words. It's, it's innovation, growth, and cash. And I think this is what's driving the interest in the company is these six 
blockbusters, kind of historic for us over the next two years, these potential blockbusters. The company has returned to growth. We've guided the growth for 24. And we're going to turn that growth and, and also EBITDA into more cash conversion with a stand up behind us and, uh, and, and continue to delever on the company. So exciting time for Elanco. Thank you for the interest in animal health. As we say in Elanco, making animals' lives better makes life better. And we look forward to all of your listeners and hopefully customers here. Uh, take care of those pets and enjoy the protein. Great, great. And, uh, you know, we've, we've, you know, f- I feel like we know you over the years because, you know, we, we run one of the biggest awards shows in, in, in medical marketing. And, um, you know, the work of Elanco has been featured there over the years. It's very, a very creative space uh, in, in the advertising world. But, you know, just to, to close things out here, you know, another learning from the pandemic was the critical role of pets, of course, in providing emotional support to people who are more isolated. And as you put it, healthy animals are that X factor, unlocking the connections among the environment, physical and mental aspects. And we we wish you the best of luck in this new exciting phase and the good work that you're doing. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeff. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak. The Senate drug pricing hearing that was scheduled for last Thursday, only to be scrapped due to a lack of participation, is back on. Johnson & Johnson CEO Joaquin Duato and Merck CEO Robert Davis agreed late last week to testify at an upcoming Senate hearing about high drug costs. The two CEOs conceded after initially refusing to testify several weeks ago, prompting Senator Bernie Sanders to threaten to subpoena both of them. The Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions, or HELP Committee, will hold a hearing on February 8th to question the big pharma CEOs on why the cost of drugs in the U.S. is significantly higher than in other countries. Bristol-Myers Squibb CEO Chris Boerner will also testify. The HELP Committee hasn't issued a subpoena in over 40 years, but Sanders was prepared to use the panel's power to bring these executives forward for testimony. That didn't come without a fight, however. Both CEOs initially refused to attend the hearing, with their companies noting in statements that Sanders' request appeared to be retaliation against the drug makers for launching lawsuits against the federal government over the Inflation Reduction Act. Merck, J&J, and Bristol-Myers Squibb are among the list of pharma companies that have sued the federal government over the Medicare drug pricing negotiation provision. Merck's diabetes drug Genuvia, J&J's cancer drug Imbruvica, and Bristol-Myers Squibb's blood thinner Eliquis are among the first 10 drugs chosen to have their prices negotiated by Medicare. The companies tried to offer other executives to testify, arguing that the CEOs did not have expertise in drug pricing. Sanders pushed back against the comments in a press conference last Thursday. They have told us that the CEOs of Johnson & Johnson and Merck just don't have the expertise necessary to tell us why they charge so much more for their medicine here than abroad. Merck went so far, and this is really interesting, to tell our staff that their CEO is a tax attorney who is not an expert on prescription drug prices. Well, maybe just maybe the CEOs of these pharmaceutical companies should become experts on why they're ripping off the American people. 
After both agreed to testify in the February 8th hearing, however, Sanders thanked them in a statement for, quote, agreeing to join the CEO of Bristol-Myers Squibb and voluntarily testify before the HELP committee. The use of subpoena was clearly a last resort, and I'm delighted that these CEOs will be coming into our committee voluntarily. The move is part of a much larger push among lawmakers to dig into high drug costs, especially since Sanders ascended to head the HELP committee last year. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MMM. Trending. And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending in healthcare. Hey, Jack. Hey there, Mark. We've got a lot to talk about today. I think the news of the day, we just have to jump into it. Neuralink did it. Lesha, what happened? So Elon Musk uh, posted on X on Monday saying that the first brain computer chip has been implanted into a patient. Um, he did not provide any details about the patient, only noting in the X post that the patient was, quote, recovering well. He added that initial results show promising neuron spike detection. The Neuralink surgery involves a robot sewing a device onto the surface of a brain. If successful, this move could be a potential milestone for brain-computer technology, which seeks to help people who are paralyzed or unable to speak. Neuralink's goal, its website states, is to, quote, restore autonomy to those with unmet medical needs today and unlock human potential tomorrow. Now, Musk also added in another X post that the first Neuralink product will be called Telepathy, and it would enable, quote, control of your phone or computer and through them almost any any device just by thinking. Initial users will be those who have lost the use of their limbs, Musk is Musk explained, imagine if Stephen Hawking could communicate faster than a speed typist or auctioneer. That's the goal. Neuralink joins a growing number of other companies who are seeking to develop brain-computer technology, including BlackRock, Neurotech, and Synchron. Now, Mark, I know that you've reported on this before, including some of the regulatory hurdles that Neuralink has faced due to safety concerns. What are your thoughts on this news? Yeah, thanks, Lesha. My thoughts, you know, not to rehash too much. Uh, I think the last time we talked about it was in September when Musk found himself defending a Neuralink's brain implant strategy against the reports of dying animals. Um, and it was around that time that the FDA had announced that they had approved the move to human experimentation, which I think the three of us were kind of raising an eyebrow about, uh, given the fact that back in previous December, December of 2022, that is, a Reuters report had come out talking about how many animals had died in testing. I think the number was around 1,500. Um, they also talked to the wire service, did uh, 20 current and former Neuralink staffers um, and reviewed internal documents uh, suggesting that 25 out of 60 pigs had the wrong size device implanted in their heads. Another involved botched surgeries that left one employee warning of the need to prevent further quote-unquote hack jobs. So you fast forward 12 months and given the series of updates, as you said, Lesha, that uh, Musk posted on X, formerly Twitter, about promising signs um, which does suggest that the device has been properly implanted um, and that the, these pat the, the patient is recovering well uh, from the procedure. So that, that does bode well. But, but the prior you know, reports you know, give, give us all pause uh, in terms of you know, scaling up you know, from this one patient uh, to, um, you know, many more patients, obviously, is, is the idea, given uh, the scientific process seems to have been, uh, had, had so many hiccups in it, uh, so to speak, 
uh, in the buildup. And also, uh, as you pointed out, this the, the, the BCI, the brain-computer interface space, is heating up, including BlackRock Neurotech, other rivals, Paradromics, Connexus di- Direct Data Interface. Um, and in BlackRock, you know, for their part, they were the f- first ones to test uh, BCI in humans way back in 2004. And you didn't hear about, you know, botched scientific processes and, 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 and an extraordinary number of animals that had died. So it just doesn't give us a lot of uh, comfort, you know, that, the, that they're making the jump to humans, given that, that mixed history. I can tell you that as with so many things with Elon Musk, the ambitions, whether that is Tesla, Neuralink, um, SpaceX, you name it, there is always this larger, we want to make the world better. Like the idea of being able to give that sort of sensory feeling life really back to people that may be um, not able to use their limbs is admirable. But as Mark has talked about in prior reporting, especially from Reuters, who's done a number of uh, very important exposés, not only about the experiments, but also the regulatory oversight of the animal safety. And you've talked with medical um, ethicist before, how can you not be concerned? You know, I was, I was out having a couple of drinks after dinner with some friends and I saw that come across. I'm like, buckle in, we're, we're in for it now. And this is different than doing experiments on monkeys or doing experiments on pigs. This is a real person. And there are real consequences that come with that, that I, I think still need to be fleshed out. I know that a lot of other people share my concern. Even if you go on X, his own site, there are people I can show you this because, we're in the same studio here, but people talking about like, I'm the first, you know, person that's taken in, that's been implanted with a Neuralink device and they got fake blood coming down from their head or somebody had quote tweeted Elon's statement saying that the patient is recovering well and the neuron spike detection. They said the audio log you find in a trashed office in a sci-fi horror game. Like there are all these sorts of things where people are having very real concerns given Elon's track record with self-driving cars that, you know, have had, have hit people in crosswalks or, you know, rockets that come hurtling back to earth and explode on impact. We're now putting a device in somebody's brain. And while it may be admirable, there are very legitimate concerns. Yeah, there's a lot of ethical questions that that come up um, as we sort of watch this develop. And I think Mark brought up a really good point, putting this into context a little bit. You know, it's easy for Elon Musk to kind of make this seem like it's a huge breakthrough, but it's not the first brain implant that's been implanted into a human brain. Obviously, Mark just mentioned it happened uh, in 2004. So it's been this has been something that's been, um, you know, studied and, and tried for you know, years now. Um, and, you know, given Neuralink's uh, track record of having a lot of these safety issues flagged, um, definitely brings some concern into the question here. So we'll be excited to sort of keep tracking this and, and watching what happens. And I think that there are a lot of comps to what we've seen with, you know, concerns. I, I remember last year when there was the um, the ALS drug that was up for consideration with the FDA and there were all the concerns about, well, what could the side effects be on the patient stuff? But then you have patients that are coming out there saying like, we want to take that risk. We want to be able to have the option that we could potentially get life back. I could imagine there are plenty of patients out there. They're like, I know there's the sketchy track record. I know that all this sort of stuff, but like, I can't move my limbs or I have a neurodegenerative disease. I would like to take that Hail Mary. I'd like to take that chance. And then that's, that's the FDA's decision uh, to, to assess the risks versus the benefits Mm -hmm. and make that decision. Like, you know, you talk about the ALS drug or even before that to Sabri for MS, you know, there was a a risk of a, of a very rare brain infection and, and the MS patients, you know, that, 
that um, opted to get the drug said we're willing to take that chance, you know, and uh, so you do see that kind of fearlessness among some patient groups. And uh, that's a really good comparison, Jack, that you could see that same fearlessness here. I'm willing to take that risk, but obviously it's up to the FDA to decide whether um, you know, the, the risk benefit analysis uh, is, uh, meets a certain threshold. And I do hope that the work culture also, you know, improves, uh, at, at uh, Neuralink because, um, you know, from what we heard and read in the, in the Reuters report, um, that the demands that Musk was setting, uh, seemed to be unrealistic for a healthcare company. Um, and you know, you, you can't have, I don't think the same, uh, sort of demands for a healthcare company that you have say for a SpaceX or a Tesla, um, or, or an X, you know, so uh, we'll, we'll keep our eyes on this one. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't hold my breath on a workplace change in an Elon Musk owned company, but that's just my own two cents. On to the second story that we have here. There is a documentary that is in the works about Celine Dion's health struggles and it has found a home with Amazon MGM. They announced that they have acquired the rights to I Am Celine Dion. It will be directed by Oscar nominated filmmaker Irene Taylor and it's a snapshot at And it's a snapshot of a pivotal moment in the life and career of the pop superstar Celine Dion. Listeners will probably remember back in December of 2022, Celine Dion went public with her diagnosis of stiff person syndrome and rescheduled tour dates, ultimately canceled those tour dates as she deals with the neurological disorder that has been upending her daily life. She's experienced spasms. It's affected her ability to walk and sing. And she's been working with a sports medicine therapist to build back her strength to perform again in the future. For those who may not be aware of what stiff person syndrome is, that's not just the name or a colloquialism. That is the actual rare acquired neurological disorder that affects the central nervous system. It's categorized by progressive muscle rigidity. It can affect anyone at any age. Most people with this condition are diagnosed between the ages of 30 and 60, and they're prone to these random, painful muscle spasms that Dion highlighted in a video when she announced her disorder back in December of 2022. There is no cure or vaccine for stiff person syndrome, and many of the treatments are aimed at managing the symptoms and improving a patient's mobility and comfort. These include uh, benzos and baclofen. So it's really going to be interesting. Obviously, we see a lot of documentaries come out that are all about patient empowerment. We were talking last week about the eternal memory, and those are always dependent on the patient. I think it always helps when you have a patient that is as famous as Celine Dion, you know, one of the most well-known singers in the world, bringing attention is something that affects one out of every one million people. But there are plenty of rare disease campaigns that are all about empowering a small group of patients. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, we've obviously talked about this this thing um, about celebrities raising awareness a lot on this podcast, and um, especially with celebrities who are pursuing like creative endeavors like music, arts, film. It's always, um, I think, helpful for them to kind of talk about, even though this is a very rare disease that affects a very small amount of people, it's always helpful when someone like Celine Dion is able to kind of open up about it and really show her personal journey. Because a lot of people wouldn't really normally come across someone who has stiff person syndrome or be able to learn much about what she's facing. So it's, you know, definitely uh, commendable on her part to be upfront and and kind of show this spotlight into a difficult um, condition, really. And it's one of those things, too, that like I, you know, we we write for a living and we could only imagine if we had some sort of medical condition that robbed us of that ability to 
fulfill our livelihood. But th- in this case, it is. She's not able to sing and she's not able to belt out, you know, it's all coming back to me or my heart will go on. You name your favorite Celine Dion song. Mark and I will be singing karaoke after this podcast ends. But <laughs> wanted to get your thoughts, Mark. You know, uh, obviously Amazon, too, putting their considerable resources. They've really gotten to the filmmaking game. So being able to show this across, I assume, all their prime platforms and stuff, it should get a pretty large audience. Yeah, you know the, the distribution channel there is uh, you know almost second to none in terms of Prime Video. You know, being in how many households um, across the country? Millions. So yeah, so it's a really um, smart move. Um, perhaps the most ho- high-profile you know rights to a creative asset that they've acquired. We'll have to look that up afterwards. But um, you know, have a couple different. Uh, things working on different levels here, you know, a, you know, as, as you could be both mentioned, here's another celebrity coming out um, on Instagram. Well, she, she revealed, you know, a year ago that she had this, this diagnosis. Um, and, uh, you know, in the ensuing months, uh, this disorder has kind of revealed its, its progressive nature, uh, unfortunately, and kind of robbing her of, of what she loves to do, uh, which is, which is awful. And, 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 uh, but, you know, her, the fact that she's uh, using her platform, you know, to uh, bring attention to it. And, and now she's going to be uh, sharing it in detail about how she's going about living as she puts an authentic life with this illness um, can only help patients uh, that come after her. So, uh, you know, I applaud her, you know, decision to bravely go through with this. The second point is that, you know, in doing a little bit of research um, on, on women's health, you uh, magazine site uh, talking about SPS, stiff person syndrome, you know, the diagnosis often presents as Parkinson's, Parkinson's disease as MS. Um, and uh, so it's, um, and, but there is a, a discrete uh, diagnostic uh, for it. They measure the, the, the amount of uh, this blood protein that you have in your system that kind of confirms the diagnosis. So, so here is another opportunity for her to help speed someone else's diagnosis. You know, she brings attention to this, not just among her fans, but also amongst, um, you know, the cl- clinical set, you know, because doctors only know so much. And I mean, if they can include this test in their diagnostic criteria, you know, as they're differentially diagnosing certain things, um, women's health being the complex area that it is, it can only help on a professional level as well. So uh, just some thoughts there, but uh, we wish her obviously the best um, for her and her fans. And just a quick note before we go to our third story, March 15th is International Stiff Person Syndrome Awareness Day. And while Amazon obviously hasn't announced when the documentary will be coming out, they do expect it to be sometime this year. So keep an eye out for that. Great. Lesha, what do you got for us last? So dry January is coming to an end. But a much larger trend appears to have taken hold, and it's called being sober curious. And it basically involves embracing the positives of sobriety or drinking in moderation. And for some people, sober curious means swapping out alcohol and hangovers for mocktails or other non-alcoholic beverages that come in fancy flavors. For others, being sober curious means they're making serious lifestyle changes for the sake of their physical and mental health. There's a bite here. The notion is becoming increasingly popular, with a number of Gen Zers who plan to drink less alcohol in 2024, jumping 53% year over year, according to a recent survey out of NC Solutions. In 2024, 61% of Gen Zers said they plan to reduce their alcohol intake, compared to just 40% in 2023. 
the takeaways for marketers is that more and more young people are interested in sober curious messaging and non-alcoholic products. Notably, one third of Gen Zers in the report said they'd be willing to try a new beverage if it markets itself as being aligned with a sober curious lifestyle. Unsurprisingly, 45% of Gen Z respondents said that social media was the most effective route for advertisers to reach them with sober curious messaging. And about one quarter of respondents said they have tried a non-alcoholic beverage when a celebrity or an influencer suggested it. The survey came out shortly after nonprofit Safe Project released a new song called It Ain't called It Ain't Five O'Clock Somewhere as part of its sensible strumming campaign to encourage sobriety. The song aims to confront country music's glamorization of drinking and urge people to drink in moderation. So, you know, it's interesting that Sober Curious is becoming a big trend among Gen Z because if I remember correctly, binge drinking was sort of a cultural aspect of, you know, being a millennial um, in the 2000s and 2010s. Um, you know, it was sort of glamorized among young people in that era. So it's interesting to see the tide turn, the pendulum sort of swing back in Gen Z's pushing back against that concept. And they're kind of starting to see alcohol not as fun anymore and rather choosing sobriety for health reasons. I mean, most of the reasons listed in these TikTok videos I've seen about Sober Curious, it's all physical and mental health reasons. You know, I'm curious to hear both of your thoughts on that. I I think it's one of those things where Gen Z is particular. I think that speaking as a a younger millennial, I, I have a sister who's Gen Z. They're particular in terms of their their view on the world, their perspectives on politics, culture, you name it. And I think there's another aspect to it where I, I know a number of people that have, you know, given up booze either for dry January or, you know, altogether in their lifestyle to it. And that's entirely their own. Um, I do think it's interesting that Sober Curious, I was looking at our podcast producer Fitz kind of rubbing his temples as you were detailing the Sober Curious. I do think it's always interesting to see the co- the commodification of something like that, where it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you can do this for your own health and you can do that for that. But brands and yeah influencers they're like jump on that already. they're like yeah. if i can make a buck i'm i'm gonna try and do that and if that's if that's what i'm gonna call it sober curious <laughs> far be it from me to to avoid that i guess it has a nice ring to it <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I, it's funny i had thought that you know the sort of poster child if you will covid stock was peloton mm-hmm. so i was kind of surprised when i read your story uh Lesha, which was excellent. And some of the TikToks that you had highlighted there, you know, included one girl who said that she made a pandemic habit of having one drink per night. So, well, what was the logic there? Yeah. Was that especially alcohol being a depressant, you know? So, uh, so this situation now where they're kind of boomeranging back to the opposite is kind of not so surprising, uh, given that they've, feel that they've seen kind of what, where that leads you to, you know, what I don't want to see hopefully is that, you know, we have a vacuum here situation where Gen Z is kind of, if they, if they are boomeranging back to sobriety again, uh, that, the, you know, the kind of products that fill that void aren't like, you know, charged lemonade, you know, from Panera bread or something. <laughs> exactly. So. Products with like questionable other ingredients that they're putting in them. Um, you know, I saw, I think I saw a product that had 
a laundry list of fancy sounding ingredients like hemp and like energy boosting supplement or something that are being marketed as like these non-alcoholic um, alternatives that you can just take to a party and it looks cool in your hand. You kind of blend in. So there's this huge wave of new products like that that are coming out with you know, strange and interesting ingredients being put in those. So um, that's sort of being mm-hmm. the replacement. It's kind of like the beyond meat. That's what it really reminds <laughs> me of, where it's like, people are like, well, I don't want to eat meat. So I'm going to cut that out. Mm-hmm. And it's like, here's this replacement of something that's like, oh, it's proteins that mimic meat. And it's like, it's okay. okay so what is, what is that it? though? <laughs> you know, it's the same thing. Like I go to restaurants and I see they'll have mocktails or have something else. And mm-hmm. for anybody that is here that owns a restaurant that controls those prices, absolutely outrageous that, prices are near what cocktails are. There's no booze in it that should not be even comparable in terms of price. And that's going to be my own little soapbox. I'll yell on this (laughs) podcast about, I shouldn't go to a restaurant where a cocktail is $18 in Manhattan and a mocktail is $15. That's outrageous. (laughs) And you should be ashamed of yourselves, but it's a very similar thing where it's like, I'm going to cut out the meat. So I'm going to go with something like that. And it's like, okay, but how much healthier is an impossible Whopper compared to a Whopper? How much healthier is, you know, this mocktail that has all these other sorts of things that you talk about, these supplements or these other, you know, at that point, are you just drinking like syrup and sugar, like as your replacement for alcohol? Like, and again, I'm not, I'm not in the hands of big alcohol. I'm not in the hands of big beer or whatever. I know my last name's O'Brien, but that is where I do have that questionable taste. In addition to the fact that wellness influencers are out there potentially co-opting this as a way to make a buck off people that are trying to make a healthier lifestyle choice. That's always where I have an issue with that. So rant finished. (laughs) Yeah. It'll uh, be interesting to see where marketers go with sober curious messaging as, as you put it, Lesha, and, and uh, you know, how they uh, seek to co-opt or capitalize on, on this uh, new trend. Well, unless it was our dry January beat reporter too. And there was so much more coverage this year than there was last year. And I wonder I if that's it, something yeah. that like when we get into January 25, if there's going to be a lot more brands and influencers, there seems to be more of the ball rolling there. And I think unfortunately it's because they maybe see that there's money attached to it too. Mm-hmm. But if people are making healthier lifestyle choices, far be it from me to put a drink in their hand. Or a vape in their hand. Or a vape. <laughs> <laughs> Right. The comparison is just so very obvious, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, things that come to fill the void, you know, are they really that much better? It's not always the best. The first thing in the door after that is not always going to be the best thing. And that's just a message people should live by. My 29 years of life, I can distill that wisdom down. Words of a a much older man, (laughs) as I can say from experience. Thanks so much for joining us in this week's episode of the MMNM podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode. We'll be joined by Helen Marianos, global head of R&D portfolio strategy at Sanofi. That's it for this week. The MMNM podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing. <laughs>